This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. He said that nothing can separate us from the love of God. No form of persecution, not even death. From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Bulletin, a podcast about the people, events, and issues that are shaping our world. I'm Mike Cosper, and I'm joined by my co-host, Nicole Martin. Russell Moore is literally trekking through the desert on a camel right now. That's not a joke. You can go check his Instagram if you don't believe me. Today on the show, we'll be joined by Bonnie Christian and Madeline Kearns. We're going to be talking about free speech and social media at the Supreme Court self-immolation as an act of protest, and Nikki Haley. She isn't in it to win it, so why is she in it? Stay with us. On Sunday, a 25-year-old U.S. airman named Aaron Bushnell went to the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C., and started a live stream on his phone and set himself on fire while screaming, free Palestine. He died of his injuries later that night. In the aftermath, many who opposed the war in Gaza took to social media to express admiration and solidarity. Presidential candidates Jill Stein and Cornel West both celebrated him. Stein posted, rest in power, Aaron Bushnell. May his sacrifice deepen our commitment to stop genocide now. Cornell West wrote, let us never forget the extraordinary courage and commitment of brother Aaron Bushnell, who died for truth and justice. He also went on to refer to the war in Gaza as a genocide. Time Magazine published an article titled The History of Self-Immolation as Political Protest, in which they wrote this, Self-immolation was also seen as a sacrificial act committed by Christian devotees who chose to be burned alive when they were being persecuted for their religion by Roman Emperor Diocletian around 300 AD. Our guest joining us now responded to that with a post over at National Review. Madeline Kearns is a staff writer there and a visiting fellow at the Independent Women's Forum. She's joined us here at the Bulletin several times before. Maddie, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. So what does self-immolation have to do with Christian martyrdom? Nothing, really. I was (laughs) astonished when I came across this paragraph in this piece, which was otherwise a, a summary of what self-immolation has been, how it's been used for various types of political protests, how it has featured in certain Eastern religions. And I'm certainly not qualified to talk about that. We have knowledge of these Indian widows who would maybe be burned on the pyre with their dead husbands. Anyway, what has that got to do with Christianity and what has that got to do with what happened on Sunday? One of the strange things about this is that what happened on Sunday, setting yourself on fire, is a form of protest, a very extreme form of protest, but it's also an act of complete and utter despair. This is what suicide is. It's the ultimate act Mm -hmm. of despair that you can do. You can, destroying what you have been given, the the greatest gift you've ever been given is the gift of life. If you were to zoom out, what these things at a sort of distorted glance may have in common is people with strong convictions and death by burning. But come on, context is everything here. And the early Christian martyrs, they did not choose to be burned alive. They died for their faith. 
And mm -hmm. in dying for their faith, St. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, and St. Paul died a martyr's death, he said that nothing can separate us from the love of God. No form of persecution, not even death. And it was with this belief in God and God's love that the Christian martyrs refused to renounce their faith and, and were, by their persecutors, killed for that. They were murdered. There's a big difference between murder and suicide. And that's really, mm -hmm. it's astonishing, really, that, that time... But that the author wrote it and the, an editor didn't say, whoa, hold on a second there. Nicole, it's interesting, too, to think about this in a theological frame, because part of the Judeo-Christian tradition's gift to the world is this idea of the unique value of every individual human life. Eastern religions, part of the sort of ethos of Eastern religion is the oneness of all things. There's a sense in which like the act of immolation in Eastern religions makes sense in the cosmology of Eastern religions where death is becoming one with everything. I'm oversimplifying, but that's generally the cosmology. So there is something so profoundly unchristian about the act, not simply as an act of suicide, but also as a symbolic act that denies the dignity of that life and the value of that life, the value of that voice. And regardless of what you think, if you agree with him wholeheartedly, you should be cheering for him to be alive and making his case, right? Making his protest, making his voice heard. I think the greatest challenge that we have with Christians who would choose suicide as protest is not the lack of value that they have for themselves, but the overinflated view that they have of themselves. Mm. Because to say, I will die in order to make a statement about an evil in the world is to presume the place of Christ. Christ died for us. He died and took on every bit of our sin. And because of his death, he doesn't say, now you set yourself on fire. Now you die on a cross as well. He says, because of my death, now you live. And that's where I think this has to be addressed theologically. Our willingness to sacrifice our lives to Christ is a willingness to live for him. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think this is wrong. I also think Christianity has a rich history of proper protest. You think about Rizpah in Samuel. She protested the unlawful death of her son and the young men who died with him, and they were not properly buried. And the Bible tells us that Rizpah held vigil for their dead bodies until David did the right thing and buried them. Christians taking their lives are wrong because we are made in the image of God and because Christ died once and for all. But also protest has a space, it has a way, it's just not that way. I wonder as well, how do we think about the moral responsibilities around this death? Because I actually think the celebration of his death, it is a truly grotesque act in and of itself. But the fact that so many of the examples of those who celebrated it use the word genocide in their celebration, it really speaks to part of the problem here. I... I personally am not convinced that this is this was not an act of despair. I spent some time this week reading the accounts of what was going on in Vietnam. There was a Buddhist monk in 1963 who self-immolated in front of the Cambodian embassy, and he was protesting what was taking place at the time. The, the French had pulled out. You had a, a Western-installed Catholic minority in power in South Vietnam, and they were oppressing the Buddhist majority. 
And there had been a, a massacre in the days before this. And so he does this act of self-immolation. It's one of the most famous photos of the 1960s. It's the for children of the 90s. It's the cover of the 1992 Rage Against the Machine self-titled album. But you think about the political circumstances, though, right? This was colonization. This is the oppression of a powerless people. And that's all the language that's being invoked around the Israel-Palestine question. And yet the parallels of the circumstances are entirely different. Because number one, the word genocide has a meaning. It has this idea that the act of genocide is the intent to destroy a group of people. And yes, the civilian death count in Gaza is terrible. And we lament every one of those lives as much as we lament the life of Aaron Bushnell. And yet... To understand how that death is taking place and to understand all of the efforts that are being made to relocate civilians, to communicate what's happening, the fact that the world will protest and say free Palestine and will not say free the hostages. If Hamas surrendered and freed the hostages, the war would be over tomorrow. But no one's setting themselves on fire shouting for those things to happen. And so I think there's something about the violence of the rhetoric and the extremism of the rhetoric that inspires this kind of despairing response. We can lament every valuable lost life in Gaza without distorting the reality in such a way that inspires this kind of despair. I have a huge concern for this because we know and have known for many decades that suicide, even when it's not political, risks contagion. And especially when they're very highly publicized. In fact, this is something that we keep in mind whenever there's a school shooting, certainly as reporters. We have to think very carefully about whether we're going to, because going into a school and shooting people is an act of murderous suicide. The likelihood that you're going to be shot and killed by the police is very high. And they know this. And some of them, of course, take their own lives. And I'm very concerned because if you consider this act that happened on Sunday, there was another one in just in December, a woman in Atlanta wrapped herself in a Palestinian flag outside the Israeli consulate there, set herself on fire. She actually survived her injuries remarkably. But I, I can't help but wonder, was Aaron Bushnell, was he inspired by this mm -hmm. recent act that was in the news? There was a couple other instances, one in 2018 in Brooklyn, New York, and the other in 2022 outside the Supreme Court. And these were climate activists who self-immolated. And again, talk about a philosophy of despair. Obviously, it's one thing to be concerned about the climate and to make those arguments, but the people who take this to a sort of existential level and think the world is basically on fire, there's nothing we can do about it, we're all being consumed, there's no hope. And so the best thing I can do to derive meaning out of my life is to have a very memorable public death. Nicole, you touched on this earlier when you were talking about the egocentricity of this sort of delusion of grandeur. But I think it also speaks to a nihilism, a belief that the life of man is but a puff of smoke and, and the best thing you can do is go out with a bang. It's crying out for Jesus Christ. Yes, it is. And I've been trying to discipline myself to really hear those who are Christian, who are influencers, and who have gone down the road of not just crying out on behalf of those that they believe have no voice in Palestine, but also really advocating pro-Palestinian messages to the extent where it's a call for reverse type of genocide. It's not just free this oppression, but also annihilate the Jews. And I've been listening because I've really wanted to hear. And I think 
what they began with, and this is where we have to be so discerning, I think, as believers, what they began with is solidarity. So a lot of the pro-Palestinian supporters are Black Christians, they're liberationist thinkers, they're people who desperately believe in the freedom from oppression and who feel a very visceral kind of connection to slavery. And so they feel that because of my experience, my history, I need to advocate for these people. The challenge, though, is they often don't do that same kind of visceral reaction on sex trafficking. There's not necessarily that same visceral reaction on the enslavement of children around the world. So we just have to be very careful. I have heard and I hear, and I also believe that there has to be an end to the constant killing. And I think they're also very disappointed with Biden. They put a lot of hope and faith and trust in Biden being able to do something about it. So they're very disappointed with him. They're very disappointed with what they believe is a situation of oppression. And, Maddie, to your point, this nihilism says, this is it. Because no one's getting our attention, somebody has to do it. Noah Rothman had a piece at National Review as well where he compared the kind of nihilism visible in this self-immolation with the nihilism of Hamas, that human life matters as a symbolic matter. And it is worthy of sacrifice for some ideological cause it doesn't have an inherent worth and dignity on its own. And I think this is something that people on the political right of this issue need to be smart about as well and need to be thoughtful about as well, because you saw a lot of very stupid, hateful comments from people on the right about this as well. Dismissive, making jokes, and that's just as devaluing of the image of God as the other idea. We fundamentally reject the idea that any individual life doesn't matter. What they're lacking in all of this, of course, is hope. And the message of Christianity is fundamentally one of hope. And if you look back to the witness of the early Christian martyrs, these were people St. Stephen was stoned to death. St. Andrew and St. Peter were, were crucified, one of them horizontally, the other upside down. We've had saints who've been killed in just horrendous ways. Nero used to tar Christians and tie them to trees in his gardens so that they could illuminate the gardens. Just acts of wanton cruelty. He even blamed the burning of Rome on Christians in order to have public sentiment be anti-Christian to justify his persecution. And yet throughout all of this, these disciples of Christ followed Christ's example of meekly understanding that violence will not have the last word. And that's what's mm. lacking in all of this, is this understanding that violence is never the answer and it can never consume and have the last word of human destiny. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the frustration that I sense when you think about people who attribute the oppression and justice lens to what's happening in Gaza as a kind of a hearkening of civil rights. Yes, but civil rights at its core was based on nonviolent acts of protest to change mm -hmm. systems. So if that worked, then let's think about ways that can work without using the same weapons that were lobbed against you and then turning them around and lobbing it against the enemy on the other side. It is a time, though, where we have to start thinking about what does faithful protest look like? What does it look like to sincerely believe deeply in something and want to change without also the demonization that can happen in the midst of it? I still can't get over what it would take to lead up to a decision to light oneself on fire. 
And I wonder, from both of your perspectives, there were some conversations about maybe there was mental health issues involved. Small pause to say, why is that always the thing? That's always Mm -hmm. the thing. I mean, there were questions raised about his childhood and did he grow up in a cult and was he on any type of medication? Does that matter in this case? I mean, does that provoke, does that evoke a, a level of sympathy? Does that matter at all? What we do know is that he was deeply immersed on Reddit and these various places online where this rhetoric of there is a genocide going on in Gaza and nobody cares. And here he is. He's a U.S. serviceman. It's people like him are to blame because he's part of the military establishment and he's part of the U.S. government and the government's funding and all this. So you get all of this culpability heaped at you and you get this rhetoric of this horrific thing is happening. The blood is on your hands and there's nothing you can do about it. I don't care who you are. I don't care what the underlying conditions are. It can certainly stir despair. I think in terms of this question of did he have mental health issues, I agree with you, Nicole. It's beside the point because when people raise this, they're really asking one of two questions. They're, They're asking, did he have mental health issues because could this have been prevented? And with these individual cases, we know that it's so difficult. It's so difficult, except for somebody's immediate family, It's very difficult for society to address the problem of people who do things like this. So it it doesn't really help us either way. And then the second question is, did he have mental health issues? And therefore, should we take that into consideration when deciding whether or not to condemn him? And again, it's not for us to condemn him. That's entirely for God. And so Mm -hmm. I think really the question becomes, why are people going to that when they have a duty to not judge him, his soul, but to judge his actions. And one thing we should be able to say, whether or not he was mentally disturbed, whether or not he knew exactly what he was doing, as say the 9-11 hijackers knew exactly what they were doing, we should just be able to say that this action is evil Mm -hmm. and nobody should be celebrating it and nobody should try to imitate it. It was bad for him. It was bad for everybody who saw it. This should be simple. And so the mental health discussion becomes a bit of a distraction. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, we will be right back. Nicole here. If you're looking for a podcast that features inspiring conversations with theologians, ministers, and pastors, then I recommend adding the acclaimed show No Small Endeavor to your podcast queue. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like the queen of Christian pop, Amy Grant, and pastor and theologian Tish Harrison Warren to ask what it means to live a life worth living. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times bestselling author and host of the wildly popular podcast, Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. It's absolutely worth a listen. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. Nicole here. If you're looking for a podcast that features inspiring conversations with theologians, ministers, and pastors, then I recommend adding the acclaimed show No Small Endeavor to your podcast queue. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. 
Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like the queen of Christian pop, Amy Grant, and pastor and theologian Tish Harrison Warren to ask what it means to live a life worth living. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times bestselling author and host of the wildly popular podcast, Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. It's absolutely worth a listen. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we are back. This past Saturday, South Carolina held its Republican presidential primary. Donald Trump won with 59.8% of the vote. Nikki Haley beat the polls, however, and walked away with 39.5% of the vote. You'd think losing by 20 points or more in every race so far would discourage a person, but Nikki doesn't seem to be quitting. People are speculating various reasons why that might be the case. Is she hanging in to try to get a VP slot? That seems very unlikely to me for all kinds of reasons, particularly just kind of the way Donald Trump works. Is she hanging in hoping that there's a sort of deus ex machina situation that pulls Trump out of the race and that the party would be forced to turn to her? I don't think that's the case. I think there's enough sort of machinery inside the party that would prevent her as the Trump opposition from getting it. Instead, there's an alternative theory, and this is one that I kind of ascribe to. I've seen a couple of other people this week writing about this, this theory that here Nikki, as somebody who's been a lifelong Republican, she was Republican governor, she served in the first Trump administration, she's hanging in there because she wants to give voice to this very clear portion of the party that just doesn't want Trump and doesn't want Trumpism anymore. And what is interesting is that even though she lost by 20 points this weekend, her portion of the vote has gotten larger with each race. And I don't think that means that at some point there's going to be a tipping point and on Super Tuesday she's going to turn things in the other direction. But the idea is institutionally Nikki is a stayer. She's going to stick with the party and she's going to say, I'm in it and I'm going to be this kind of a voice inside this party because we're going to lose in November. I think she believes that. And when we lose, it's time to reassess who we are. And she wants to be, if not the figurehead, part of or a key figure in the rebuilding in a post-Trump Republican Party. Now, I could be wrong about that on 18 levels. She could announce her endorsement tomorrow and become the VP. She could jump from the party and join no labels. <laughs> Anything can happen. Trump could win and she could be truly and deeply sidelined at that point. I, I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to say that she's really the protest candidate at this point. I would be very surprised if she ended up in a Trump administration. She seems to right. have burned that bridge quite spectacularly, especially recently in things that she said. Now, of course, Trump has been known to take people back after they've said things, but only after they give this sort of humiliating recant in front publicly. And we saw Tim Scott do this. We saw Vivek Ramaswamy, although he never really went after Trump to begin with. But I just don't see Nikki Haley doing that. I mean, I, again, going on at LM here, I really do think she's somebody of personal integrity. I think this is clear in the way she stays true to what she believes when she's really pressed on it, even when it doesn't politically advantage her. 
I think you're right. I think on one level, there's a sort of symbolic thing going on here where she wants to be the sort of respectable face of the Republican Party. And if it all crashes and ruins, she'll still be there in 2028. She's only in her 50s. She's got a long career ahead of her. But there is, I think, a little bit of a, a Hail Mary political strategy as well, which is that she doesn't really have a game plan here. There's no conceivable way she could win the nomination. But it's not off the table that Trump gets struck by lightning or something that nobody saw coming. And I think she would be a very good stand-in should that happen. And actually, there was a very interesting poll. and One doesn't want to read too much into these. This poll in particular could have been an outlier, but I thought it was interesting nonetheless. It was the Marquette Law School poll, which found that in a hypothetical matchup between Haley and Biden in a general election, Haley was ahead of Biden by 16 points. 16 points is, is enough to get those swing states, even states that have always been democratic strongholds. So mm-hmm. I do think this is something that it makes sense at this point for her to conceive of herself as a backup candidate. I agree with both of your assessments. And I think it feels a little odd in a society where it's okay to be politically fickle. It's okay to say one thing and do another thing the next day. We've accepted that it's the norm that someone would jump out when they think they're going to lose and jump in when they think they're going to win. It is a weird thing to see someone stick it out. And you do that even through the embarrassment because South Carolina was embarrassing. It wasn't just embarrassing because that was her state. It was embarrassing because the man that she put in place, Tim Scott, literally turned against her. And it's embarrassing when the other or the undecided category has higher votes than you. Her name is still being spoken. That matters for something. She's among those, her, Asa Hutchinson, Chris Christie. At the end of this year, whatever else happens, they'll be able to sleep at night knowing that they gave it their best, they put themselves out there and spoke from conviction. And certainly Hutchinson and Christie never really had much of a shot. But it was, again, it was trying to figure out how do we catalyze this protest vote and what does it mean? Maddie, do you think Republican voters that are voting for her right now will come home by November? Or do you think some portion of that is locked in, like they'll just never do it? What's hard about this is that I think it was Steve Kornacki who made the point that we have to be careful about reading too much into what we're seeing in the primaries, given that Republican voters and people who vote in Republican primaries are not necessarily the same thing. So Mm. we are seeing like independents and even Democrats, highly motivated anti-Trump independents and Democrats who are turning out in Republican primaries where they're allowed to participate and casting votes for somebody like Nikki Haley because it's a protest vote and that's what they want to do. So those people are never going to vote for Trump. And actually what's interesting about this is normally what you would see is even though Trump is miles ahead of Nikki Haley, if this was like a normal presidential candidate or we assume that he'll be the nominee, he would be thinking at this point, okay, she's still taking 40% of the vote. I should do something to reach out to those people, to win those people over. And Trump is just not interested in doing that. Now, I will say... Yeah, you lost Trump when you said normal. (laughs) (laughs) But in a sense, it would be futile, would it not? We Mm -hmm. know who he is now. This is not 2016. This isn't even 2020. This is Trump post-January 6th. This is Trump having absolutely alienated suburban voters. And so in a way, he's doing what he does best, which is energizing his base, energizing Trump loyalists. 
And there are certainly still many of those still around, (laughs) evidently. But that is not enough in a general election. You've got to be able to reach these people whose votes he needs, whose votes he needed in 2020 and didn't get. Mm -hmm. And he's not doing that. It's so interesting because on the one hand, I wholeheartedly agree with you that there's so much about who he is that would tell us that he's not inclined to make that move. But there's also this part of Trump that is the reason I think he won in 2016 is that Trump the performer, Trump the charismatic salesman, Trump the the wooer, the minute someone makes the gesture of it before him, like bows to the king or whatever before him, yeah, he'll humiliate Tim Scott a couple of times. But then Tim Scott's his buddy old pal, and he's going to have nothing but good things to say about Tim Scott for forever. So it, there is this part of me that's, I totally agree with you, and I think that's what's most likely to happen. But I also think that this is a guy who can switch at a dime, particularly if his advisors convince him that what he needs is to win over Nikki and make her his new BFF. I don't know that she would make that happen, but he has that gift. If you've been around like charismatic, narcissistic types, I always tell people this. One of the things we talk about a lot on this show is we talk about what's going on with kind of the leadership crisis in the church in the last couple of decades and these charismatic, narcissistic personalities and the abusive cultures that emerge around them. And what I always tell people when they say, how does this ever happen? I say, go spend five minutes in the room with one of these guys. You might be their loudest critic online, but if they can actually get you in the room, your defenses drop so quickly because it's just a unique thing. And I think there's so much of that to Trump. And I think that explains so much of the weird cult of personality that you see, not around his followers that are going to the rallies, but even around D.C., around the people who can't quit him and are endorsing him before the first race. There's something about that that I'm like, yeah, that's the superpower thing that he can switch on and you just never know what's going to happen. When he's ready to do it, he he can do it. But again, if I had to put money on it, I'd say I think you're exactly right. I don't think he's capable of it because he's so fueled by grievance at the moment. In the scenario of Nikki Haley hanging in there because you never know if Trump will be struck by lightning, Is that an automatic thing? If Trump, for whatever reason, is taken out of the race, is that an automatic assumption that Nikki Haley would run the party? Because there's a part of me that says, I think there's a statement that Republicans are making. They're just not ready for a woman, period. (laughs) I don't think necessarily. I think in that event, you could even see the reemergence of some of the dropouts. (laughs) You could even see DeSantis say, now's Mm -hmm. my time. (laughs) But I think you're absolutely right that there is this incredible unpredictability factor with Trump. And we've Mm -hmm. seen this, you mentioned, Mike, his ability to be magnanimous when he wants to, when it serves him. And we saw that actually after DeSantis dropped out, he he was suddenly saying nice things about him. It's possible that he'll do that with Haley. It's also possible that she'll soften in some of her criticisms. She was never on the debate stage with him, but when she was campaigning against him earlier, when there were more candidates, she was a little softer in her criticisms. She was always trying to be tactful or not take it head on. Obviously, now there's just two of them. That That's not the way to go. But yeah, we could see this relationship change. I just personally don't think yeah. we're going to ever see them properly reconciled. Yeah. Last thought on this. I'd just love to hear both of your thoughts on the virtues of staying, when the temptation has to be for so many people. And again, we've seen this so much. You've seen the way the party has changed, the never Trump thing, people who leave and say it's time to burn it down and all of that. 
here's someone who's staying and then even staying in the race. To my mind, someone who's in it to fight for the long haul health of the institution. I think there's something admirable about that, but it also shows you what a titanic fight it actually is, that she has a very hard road and most likely it will come to nothing. What are your thoughts on that? I think often what happens with these things is the decision is made for the person by finances. <laughs> because you've got to be able to explain to your donors what you're getting for their money. And I think that the challenge that she's going to have is that if she becomes the complete anti-Trump sort of protest vote, then the Trump campaign will be quite easy for them to attack her saying, like, you're not only not a real Republican, which is what he already says, you're funded by Democrats. You're funded by people who want mm -hmm. the Republican Party out of power. At that point, whether you like it or not, your sort of identity changes and you're no longer the Republican protest vote. You're just like anti-Trump protest vote regardless. So there's a risk with that. It's hard not to just admire something. I admired Chris Christie as well, as much as I disagree with many of his views on policy. I, it's a hard thing to stand up on a stage and have people hate you. Or it's a hard thing to like go into a primary and come out with an embarrassing, as you say, Nicole, embarrassing share of the vote in your home state. And yet to keep going, it, whether or not it's politically prudent, it's admirable. <laughs> and just in our conversation now, I'm realizing... Is it that she has staying power and willpower and strength and great advisors that say keep going because you might make it? Or is it that she's counting on the fragility of Trump's <laughs> legal issues and that maybe he yeah. might run out of money with all of the fines that he's going to have to pay? And maybe she is banking against his age and against those things. So I can't tell if this is an offensive move because I see myself winning or a defensive move because you are about to fail and everyone in my corner sees it. That's why I was asking the question, yeah. if Trump does fail, is that a shoe in I just don't know. Regardless, either of those scenarios, she's demonstrating an immense amount of resilience to do it. Maddie Kearns, thanks for joining us once again. We will be right back. Life is unpredictable. I think all of us learn that. Sometimes we learn it in good ways. Sometimes we learn it in really hard ways. You're valuable to Christianity Today, and we want you to be prepared and protected. And one of the ways that that can happen is by having a will and getting a will together for your family and to care for your loved ones. If you've already set up your will and other important estate planning documents, that's great. But if you haven't, Christianity Today has partnered with Epic Will to easily and affordably walk you through the whole process of creating a legally binding and state-specific will in as little as 10 minutes. You owe it to yourself and your loved ones to take this vital step, and you can get started today by visiting morect.com will. That's more with just one O ct.com slash will and for a limited time you can get 10% off that's morect.com slash will what I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood a few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin we launched Promised Land a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. 
Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But hey, all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. This week, laws passed in Florida and Texas were challenged at the Supreme Court. These laws restrict online platforms from content moderation on certain opinions, especially political opinions. They were both passed by conservative legislators and governors, largely in the aftermath of 2020, where heterodox opinions about COVID, the George Floyd protests, and the election could get a person censored, suspended, or banned. Tech companies are challenging the law, saying it violates their First Amendment protections, which is to say their right to choose what is and isn't available on their platforms. Most court watchers seem to think the Supremes will send the case back down to lower courts for further review. But reading the arguments brings into relief a couple things. One is how significantly social media has reshaped these free speech debates. And it highlights once again this fundamental question that keeps coming up. How do we think about social media companies? What role are they playing? Are they more like a publisher or public utility? Which is to say, are they a newspaper? Are they responsible for every word that's posted on the platform? Or are they more like a phone company where it's none of their business what's posted? Joining Nicole and I to talk about this is Bonnie Christian, editorial director of Ideas and Books here at Christianity Today, and the author of Untrustworthy, The Knowledge Crisis, Breaking Our Brains, Polluting Our Politics, and Corrupting Christian Community. Bonnie, welcome back to The Bulletin. Yeah, thank you for having me again. Talk to us a little bit about why this debate matters and why, in particular, why does it matter to Christians? What's at stake in a lawsuit like this? Sure. Something you've probably heard if you've been following this lawsuit at all is Section 230. This is a law that is the status quo of how this kind of content moderation works online. And what it basically says is that social media platforms and, and other websites as well that have users posting content on their site, they're allowed to moderate that to the degree that they want to without making them legally liable for everything else that's on there. For instance, you could, if you owned Twitter, set it up to automatically delete, say, every post that uses a racial slur. That would be something fairly easy to set up. You program it to look for these words, you delete the post where the words appear. But there are lots of other things that might slip through the cracks. For example, I could libel Mike by going on Twitter and saying this man kidnaps dogs and makes them into fur coats. That's never going to get caught by an algorithm looking for racial slurs, and so it might well slip by. What Section 230 says is Bonnie is legally liable for libeling Mike, but Twitter is not legally liable for hosting my libel. Section 230, I think it's fair to say, created the social internet as we know it, because it's in many cases just not going to be 
realistically possible for these companies, especially on the scale that they operate now, to moderate at such a level of intensity that many people want to catch every single false or bad thing. And that's even before you get into the question of who decides what's false or bad. There are types of posts you can't remove based on political content in Texas. And then the Florida one, I believe it has specific speakers whose posts you can't remove, like candidates for office. And you can understand the intent there, right? I think they've been pretty open that it's about keeping politically conservative content that is deemed to be bad or false from being removed by moderators. If they were allowed to stand, though, that kind of upends the Section 230 system that we've had. I think it would open the door to a lot more, frankly, very unpleasant content on these sites. And the thing is, we kind of already know what happens when you have a social media site with zero moderation. You can go to somewhere like 4chan or Gab, and they are just right. cesspools of really disgusting stuff that, I mean, there's a reason most normal people don't use these sites. It is unpleasant. And I think Christians especially mm -hmm. would be very put off by what you find if you have a completely unmoderated social network. I was thinking about how a year ago, the conversation was all about the time mm -hmm. Elon Musk announced that he wanted to buy Twitter. And, you know, he promised this sort of unregulated free-for-all transformation. And he did come in and remove a lot of the restrictions and he fired a lot of people. And then he had to slowly, quietly hire them back because it, Twitter was very quickly going the way of these other networks. Nicole, you're someone who's active online and you're active on these networks. One thing I was thinking about is how the way people often experience this is that you've got your Facebook page, you've got your Instagram page or whatever. You don't really think much about it as a possession, as something that you own. And then one day you post a meme or you post a comment and the next day you come back to it and you're locked out. And all of a sudden it's now it's mine and you took it away from me, right? How do you think about navigating the toxic nature of social media as somebody who's trying to do ministry in the midst of it? I walk into these conversations fully aware of my own, I don't want to say two-sidedness, but I really do struggle with very real tensions. On the one hand, my personal relationship with social media is absolutely on the hate side. <laughs> I literally hate posting. I have a friend who helps me for a reason. I don't like to post. I don't like to read what people think about what I post. I don't like to see how many people didn't look at it because it doesn't matter how many people looked. It matters how many people didn't. And I don't <laughs> like the emotions it brings up within me, which is scientifically and research proven, especially for women and even more so for young girls. The impact of social media on how we think of ourselves, on how we value ourselves is completely antithetical to the image of God. I also battle with my need for greater regulation because I'm a mom. For me, the biggest question is who really is in control? So what I like about your question, Mike, is I think it gets at the core of what I wrestle with. Who is in control? Am I in control? And therefore I can post whatever I want. Is the network itself in control and it could censor me and block me out? And how would that make me feel? As we think about free speech, my, my gut reaction is, yes, I want things regulated. I just don't know how or who mm -hmm. does that or what incentives we provide, both on the individual level and on the government level. Yeah, it's really, it's messy. I share that hate of social media. I would love to see these networks die and never come back. I don't want the government to kill them. I want them to die a market mm -hmm. death that we recognize this is bad. This is corrupting. We made a mistake in our optimism about this as like a democratizing, friendship-increasing force. It is the opposite of that. 
but I do not want the federal government to come in and shut them down or make it impossible for them to operate when they're not doing something criminal. And being online garbage dumps of content is not a crime. A couple of years ago when these debates started to really surge because you first started to have especially conservative voices saying, hey, I think I'm being shadow banned. They're limiting my reach. You were seeing some of that stuff start to emerge. And then now the Twitter files, these document releases that have taken place over the last year, have proven that there was a lot of that going on. It was true. What you had was this situation where it was the worst of both worlds. You had a sense that there was no regulation. You kind of had the sense on the platforms that you had all of this freedom. But then the platform itself held all this power to restrict. And it was a black box as far as understanding how were these decisions being made? Why were different things being restricted? What was going to get you banned? What was going to get you blocked? If someone posted that they were concerned about certain side effects or downstream consequences of the COVID vaccine, that would get at least a community note, or it might get you suspended. Or you would see things like what was happening with J.K. Rowling around that time when she would post about trans issues in the U.K., and she would literally have people threatening to physically sexually assault her. And she would complain about it and report them and then get a, a thing back that said, mm -hmm. this doesn't violate our code of conduct. I remember Charles Cook wrote a piece where he basically said, look, let's not regulate this to solve it. But if, if you're going to have rules, tell us what the rules are. I don't care if it's a 500-page long book of what the rules are, that, of what you can and can't say. At least tell us so we know what's going to get us in trouble or not. And then we can make a competent decision to say, clearly your rules are biased in a way that I don't like, and I'm going to take my business elsewhere. Certainly, if I were, God forbid, running a social media company, I would think that being transparent with your rules would be the way to go. To a little bit play devil's advocate, though, on the scale that we're talking, a certain amount of moderation has to be automated, right? It's just not possible for them to hire that many human moderators. And when you're automating, how much can you appeal? Because a human would have to review those appeals to make that a meaningful process. And you run into the same question of the sheer number of people you need on a network with millions or billions of people. The other thing that I think closely related to that gets lost in this debate, and that kind of makes me see the sense of a more heavy-handed moderation regime that sometimes has false positives, that sometimes removes innocent posts, is that the act of being a human moderator is really terrible. An outlet called The Verge has done reporting on this, specifically on Facebook moderators, and these people are like smoking weed in their bathroom at work because it's the only way they can get through the day because again and again, they are exposed to the same awful child pornography, just horrible things over and over again that they have to take down. And imagine taking down that piece of content the 10th, the 20th, the 30th time. And this is something I struggle with. Is it even ethical for me to use these networks at all? I'm not the one putting that content in front of those people, but I am participating in the network. I am helping it exist. It's making money off ads that are shown to me. And that is making those people, I mean, you know, nobody forced them to take the job, but the fact is the job is going to exist if the network is going to moderate. And I don't know, at this point, I understand the frustration of feeling you've been unfairly banned from a popular social network. 
if it happened to me, I'm sure I would feel that also, but the kind of the reaction that I hope I would have is, I was really into Fiddler on the Roof when I was a kid. I've probably watched that movie like a hundred times. You know, the scene where I think it's Tevia, someone tells him money is the world's curse. And he says, may God curse me that way. And may I never recover. May I be banned and may I never be let back on. <laughs> back to your point, Bonnie, about you want these networks to die a market death and not necessarily be regulated by government, if they're not regulated by government, doesn't that assume that we're putting enough trust in moderators and the market itself to eventually do the right thing? Mm, no, I don't have that trust at all, and which is why I don't necessarily think that they will die a market death. I think most people are pretty bad and make bad choices, but I think there's a larger free speech principle at stake, and free speech arguments frequently sound like a slippery slope argument, but it really is a slippery slope. Once you begin to permit state regulation based on content, once you begin to say, and it's not even just a free speech issue, it's also a freedom of association issue, that if you have a company, you should be able to say, I don't want to have Nazis participating in my company. I think that is a major principle that even if it does mean we are stuck with Facebook and Twitter and all these places, that we have to uphold. Yeah, you can imagine a situation where a few years from now, an organization like ADF, the Alliance Defending Freedom, or pro-life activist groups or that sort of thing, if they aren't utilities that have, are open access to everyone, then they would have the right to ban those kinds mm -hmm. of groups from mm -hmm. it, which is, again, why you keep seeing sort of the attempts to start an ideologically conservative version of these things, whether it's Gab or Truth Social or whatever else it might be. That's a potential downstream consequence. And again, we know where those go. It's not pretty. And I don't think it ever will be because mm -hmm. the fact is people don't behave themselves online, especially in these large group spaces where there's a degree of anonymity. I also think there's something quite cynical often about the way these major companies request regulation. In this case, they're pushing back against mm -hmm. it because it's a hassle for them. But then in other cases, you see them go to the House or the Senate at some hearing and say, yes, please regulate us, make us do this thing. And of course, they're the reason they're doing it is because they have the resources to comply with that and their smaller competitors don't. So there's often these layers of other interests that are not about either free speech or aims of politeness or protecting kids from bad content. And it just complicates the whole discussion in a really unfortunate way. All right. Well, I guess we shall see. Yeah. Bonnie Christian, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks again for having me. All right. Well, that is it for us this week. Hey, listeners, we want to hear from you. We want to get some feedback about how you are enjoying the show. If you could take a second and go to morect.com, M-O-R-E-C-T.com slash bulletin, we have a listener survey up there. If you could take a minute and fill that out, let us know how you're feeling about the show, that will help us to better serve you in the future. Other than that, we're continuing to produce episodes of Promised Lands, our series about Israel-Palestine. But as of this week, we've moved it over to its own feed. So you'll find that link in our show notes. You'll find the link to the listener survey in our show notes as well. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. The Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. It's executive produced by Eric Petrick and Mike Cosper. It's produced by Clarissa Mall and Matt Stevens. Post-production by TJ Hester. Our art for this episode is by Rick Shooks. Music by Dan Phelps. And social media by Kate Lucky. Thanks for listening.